Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. I'm so happy to see all of you. It is a blessing to be able to be together on this Lord's Day, to be able to worship God, praise the name of God. We're here first and foremost to worship the Heavenly Father, the Father who is so good to us and blesses us every single day, but also realize that today is a special day in our country for earthly fathers. And so I want to say Happy Father's Day to all the fathers who are here this morning. May God bless you. May God bless your family. You know, if you, if you were to ask me to get out a sheet of paper and make a list of 10 good fathers in the Bible, I would, I would struggle with that. I would really struggle with that. I would really struggle with that because the fact of the matter is there are not a lot of good fathers in the Bible. There are not a lot of good fathers that we can read about in the Word of God. There are not a lot of good fathers in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Take, for example, David the man we've been studying about at least once a month for the last several months. While David was a man after God's own heart, while David did write the vast majority of the Psalms and he killed a Philistine giant, Goliath, and he was a mighty warrior in the army of God, as we continue to study his story over the next few months, I think we're going to see that he was a bad father. He was a really bad father. He didn't discipline his children. He didn't rebuke them when they committed sin. He had one son who raped his half-sister, another son who tried to usurp or take his throne from him. And then he had another son who tried to kill Solomon, who was the heir to the throne. David had a lot of problems in his family, and the truth is he was responsible for a lot of those problems. He wasn't a really good father, and neither was Samuel. While Samuel was a prophet, a priest, and a judge, his sons, Joel and Abijah, were known to be wicked and corrupt men who were actually appointed to be judges in Israel by their father Samuel. He also was a father who seemed to enable the bad behavior of his children. He was a bad father, and maybe he learned how to be that from Eli. Remember Eli? Remember Eli was the high priest and mentor of Samuel, and God rebuked and pronounced judgment on his household because he knew that his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were doing evil and corrupt things in the tabernacle of God, and he didn't do anything about it. He didn't rebuke his sons. He didn't discipline his sons. He didn't remove them from the priesthood. He also was a bad father. And what about Jacob? Remember, Jacob committed a big, a big no-no as a parent. He picked a favorite child. He picked a favorite son, and that led to all kinds of hostility and grudges and bitterness and and hatred between his sons. He actually followed in the footsteps of his father Isaac. Remember, Isaac also picked a favorite son. His favorite son was Esau, and that led to all kinds of division and resentment and hostility between the two brothers. There's just not a lot of good fathers that we can read about in the Bible, and I don't know about you, but to me, that's discouraging. That's very discouraging because, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we're living in very evil times. We're living in very evil days. We're living in days where it's hard to be a parent. It's hard to be a mother. It's hard to be a father. It's hard to be a father who has the responsibility 
of raising his family in the ways of God. I really want you to think about that. I want you to think about how in our time today, our society is constantly preaching to us that families don't need fathers. They don't need a man. They don't need a man in the house. They just need a woman or maybe two mothers. You add to that all the gender confusion that's being promoted in our society. You got some people who can't tell you what a man is. They can't tell you what a woman is. And then you got school shootings. You got people afraid to send their kids to school because they fear they might not be safe. They fear they might be shot. And then you got all this racial tension and unrest in our society right now. And then you got a rising number of young people beginning to accept things like atheism and agnosticism and postmodernism and the mentality that suggests that I want that I want Jesus, but I don't want the church. I want Jesus, but I don't want church. That is a mentality that a lot of young people are beginning to adopt. And let's not forget all the social media dangers that are out there. Let's not forget all the social media dangers lurking on things like TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and a whole host of other things that I just have a hard time keeping up with. And again, it's not as easy. It's not easy being a parent. It's not easy being a mother. It's not easy being a father. It's not easy being a real man of God who leads his family in the ways of God. And the question is, what are we to do? Who are we to turn to? Are there any good fathers in the Bible who can encourage us and inspire us and, and help us be the kind of men that God has called us to be? Well, I submit that while there are not a lot of good fathers in the Bible, there are a few. There are a few fathers who also raised their children in the ways of God. And they did it in tough times, and they're worthy of our invitation. And one person that comes to my mind is Job. Will you go in your Bible, please, to the book of Job? Please go in your Bibles to Job chapter 1. I want to invite you in your Bible to Job chapter 1. Many of you are familiar with the story of Job. You're familiar with how despite suffering immensely in his life, despite losing his wealth and his health, and all of his children on the very same day, despite being assaulted by the devil, aggressively, Job continued to serve the Lord. He continued to put God first, to be a servant of God. He wouldn't quit. We're familiar with that aspect of Job's story, but we may often overlook is what the Bible tells us about the kind of father he was. And so in Job 1 and verse 1, the Bible says there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and the man was blameless, upright, Fearing God and turning away from evil, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them. Rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this continually. So I want you to notice a few things we learn about Job here. Notice how while we don't know what time period Job lived in, I tend to believe that he lived before the time of Abraham. We do know that he served the Lord. He served God. He was righteous and blameless in the eyes of God. He turned away from evil and he walked on the path of righteousness. And he also was a man of great faith. He was a man of great wealth. 
He had faith and he had wealth. He had a lot of animals and he had a lot of servants. and He also had a pretty big family. The Bible says he had 10 children. He had seven sons and three daughters. And like all the parents in this room, he loved his children. He loved his children immensely. In fact, he loved them so much that the scripture says he did some incredible things for them. He got up early in the morning and he did spiritual things for them. He prayed for them. He offered burnt offerings for them. As the patriarch of the family at this time, he seemed to have functioned as some sort of priest at this time, and he would make intercession for his children. In fact, it is especially interesting why he did that. Notice in verse 5, he says he did that because perhaps his sons had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Doesn't that remind you of anything? Doesn't that language remind you of anything? It should. That is the very same thing that Job's wife is going to try to get him to do later. She's going to try to get him to sin against God by cursing God because they're suffering. Job doesn't want his children to do that. Job doesn't want his children to lose their souls. He doesn't want them to curse God, even though he's got a lot of animals and a lot of land and a lot of flocks and herds to tend to every single day. He gets up early in the morning and he does spiritual things for his family. In fact, the text says he did that continually. The idea of continually means that Job did that all the time. That was his habit. That was something he did for his children all their lives. And I'm going to tell you something. When I read that, that, that encourages me. That encourages me immensely. That encourages me because I can do that. I can be like Job. I can be a father who prioritizes spiritual things for my children. I can prioritize their souls. I can get up in the morning and pray for my kids like Job did. I can continually pray for my kids. I can get up in the morning and make supplications on their behalf. I can pray that God will be with them as they go out into the world and face all kinds of challenges. I can pray that God will help them remember the things that I've taught them from the Bible. I can pray that God will give them wisdom and good judgment. I can pray that God will protect them from the devil or at least give them the courage to do what's right as they battle him. Job was a man who prioritized spiritual things with his family. And I can be like Job. You can be like Job. As parents, we can prioritize spiritual things with our kids, but not only is Job a good father, another man that comes to my mind is Abraham. Go in your Bible to Genesis, the 18th chapter, please. In Genesis, the 18th chapter, and in verse number 19, we learn why God chose Abraham to make those three great promises to. The Bible says in Genesis 18 and verse 19, the Lord said, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Notice how Abraham was going to be a man who commanded his children in the ways of God. He was going to raise his children right. He was going to lead his family to serve the Lord. And we get a practical example of this in Genesis 22. Remember in Genesis 22, we read about the time when Abraham is being told by God to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. God told him to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And Abraham's going to obey God. He's going to do that. He's going to obey the Lord. And it's interesting the conversation they have along the way. 
In Genesis 22 and verse 6, it says, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the knife in his hand, the fire in the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And so I want you to notice a couple of things here about Isaac. First, notice how Isaac isn't like we may have imagined him to be when we were little kids going to Bible class. He isn't a little, he isn't a little boy. He's not a little boy. If he were at Monte Vista this morning, he might not be in the auditorium Bible class, but he probably also wouldn't be in Sister Veronica and Sister Judy's class sitting next to my daughter Faith. He's not five years old. He's not six. He's not seven. He's old enough. He's old enough to carry wood. You see that? He's carrying wood up a mountain. What five-year-old do you know can carry wood up a mountain? I don't know about y'all, but when my kids were five years old, I didn't trust them to bring me a glass of water without a disaster happening, let alone carry some wood. I was just carrying wood. He's old enough to carry wood up a mountain, and he also is old enough to have a deep spiritual conversation with his father. In verse number seven, notice what, uh, again, what he asked his father. He says, behold, the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? How in the world did he know that? How in the, how in the world did he know a lamb was needed for the burnt offering? How in the world did he know that a key item for their worship to God was missing? Well, I submit the only way he could have known that is if he was taught that. He had to be taught that by Abraham. You see, while the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of details about Abraham's parenting style, one thing it does tell us is he taught his children how to worship. He taught his children who worship is to and how to do it and how it's supposed to look. And brothers and sisters, that encourages me. That encourages me because I can do that. You can do that. We can all do that as parents. As a father, I can teach my children how to worship God. I can explain to them at home why we do the things that, that we do here and why we don't do certain things. Then I can see what questions they have. I can teach them what the Lord's Supper is all about. I can help them find scriptures in the Bible as, as, the, as the preacher is preaching the word of God. I can show them how to sing out and sing loud and explain to them why we don't use instrumental music in our worship. If I have small children, I can give them some money every single Sunday and help them right now learn how to participate in worship by learning how to give to God. Like Abraham taught Isaac how to worship, I can also teach my kids how to worship. I can teach my kids how to worship the Lord right now. In fact, teaching them how to worship God is one of the most important things I could ever teach them. It's more important to teach them how to hit a baseball, throw a football, shoot a basketball, or cut the grass, or tie their shoes. While there's something wrong with teaching our children how to do those things, we need to understand that when we teach our kids how to worship, we're helping them develop a relationship with God. We're helping them know the Lord. We're helping them understand how to give reverence and praise to God. Job and Abraham were good fathers. But you know someone else who was a good father? I'm reminded of Noah. I think about Noah. When you go in your Bible to Genesis chapter 6, you know, we all have Noah to thank, thank this morning because 
Without Noah, we wouldn't be here. Without his faithfulness and his trust in the Lord, the whole human race would have been exterminated a long time ago. And so in Genesis chapter 6, what do we learn? Well, we learn that during a time when the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every thought of his heart was only evil continually, a man named Noah found favor in the eyes of God, verse 8. And he was commanded by God to build an ark to preserve both he and his family from the flood that God was going to send on the whole world. That's verses 14 through 18. And in verse 22 of Genesis 6, the Bible says that when Noah received these instructions, verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Notice what the Bible says about Noah. Notice how despite living in a world full of sin and wickedness and all kinds of evil, despite living in a world where people probably mocked him as he built that ark, and they laughed at him and they probably even called him crazy, he obeyed the Lord. He did exactly what the Lord told him to do. God told him to build this ark, and notice the Bible never says he argued with God. He didn't argue with God. He didn't argue with God like, like Moses did when, when God first came to Moses. Remember that? He didn't complain. He, he, he didn't try to debate God. He didn't say to God, well, wait a minute, God, you got the wrong man for this project. No, the Bible says Noah just obeyed. He just got up and he did what God told him to do. And that certainly would have impacted his children. That certainly would have impacted his sons. His sons would have watched him. They would have watched him building that ark day in and day out, and 10 years go by and it doesn't rain, and 20 years go by and it doesn't rain, and 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years go by and it doesn't rain, and they were, if they were helping him with this project, they probably got a little frustrated. They probably got a little angry. They probably thought their father was, was kind of crazy, and maybe God didn't speak to our father. I'm saying that because the Bible never says that God spoke to them. The Bible never says that God spoke to Sham, Ham, and Japheth. No, the Bible just says God spoke to Noah. Noah is the patriarch of the family. And so as his sons watch him, they're probably getting a little frustrated as time goes by, but then one day that rain comes, and the floodgates opened, and now they're what? They're thankful, right? They're relieved. They're grateful that their father was obedient to God. And they got up and went into that ark with him, and they were saved, them and their wives. It reminds me of what the Bible says in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 5, the Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Peter says that as Noah built that ark, he was, he was preaching. He was teaching the word of God to a sinful world, a world that only had one person at that time who was trying to serve the Lord. He's preaching the word of God. In fact, I submit that the greatest sermon he preached during that time was the sermon of his life. It was the sermon of his example. It was the sermon of his obedience to God and his devotion to God. Noah was an obedient man, and that impacted his family. That impacted his children. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm encouraged by that. I'm greatly encouraged by that because you know what? I can do that. You, you can do that. 
Every mother here can do that. Every father here can do that. Every grandparent here can do that. We all, like Noah, can be a model of obedience. We can be a model of obedience as we live in a sinful and corrupt and evil world. We can be a model of obedience when it comes to self-control. We can be a model of obedience when it comes to controlling our tongue and controlling our tempers. We can be a model of obedience when it comes to how we treat other people. We can model before our children how we're supposed to treat our neighbor, how we're supposed to treat our brethren, how we're supposed to treat our enemies, how we're supposed to treat their mama. We can be models of obedience when it comes to how we treat people. And we can also be models of obedience when it comes to being servants. When it comes to serving other people and putting the needs of other people even before their, our, our own needs. And, and when I mess up as a daddy, when I mess up as a father, which I do all the time, I can also be a model of obedience to, before my children when it comes to repenting. When it comes to having some humility and being willing to, to, to say to my children when I mess up, I'm sorry. Daddy messed up. I'm sorry. I can say I'm sorry to my children. I can say I'm sorry to my wife. I can certainly say I'm sorry to my God. I can model this in front of my children. And I got to be that model because we make and fool a lot of people. But one group of people we can't fool when it comes to Christianity is our kids. Our kids know the real deal about us. My kids know the real deal about me. They know Sean, who, who isn't just wearing a suit and coming to church, sitting in a pew, and singing songs and putting money in a collection plate and taking the Lord's Supper. No, they know the Sean at home. They know the Sean that they see all the time. And that's why it's so important that I be a model of obedience. I can't fool them. I make them fool you, I can't fool them. And so it's not enough for me to teach my kids the Bible. And bring them to worship assemblies and, and, and youth group studies and even SBS all week. All oh, that's fine and great. We need to do that, but that's not enough. As a parent, I also got to live this. I got to live what I'm teaching. I got to be a model of obedience to God like Noah was. If I don't live what I'm teaching my kids, then I'm showing them you don't have to take Christianity very seriously. I got to be a model of obedience. That's what Noah was. He obeyed God. And his kids certainly saw that, and they were saved. But there's one more person I want to share with you very quickly, and we're going to be done. And that's a guy by the name of Jonadab. You know who Jonadab is? Someone says, Sean, who in the world is that? Who is Jonadab? I know who Jonathan is, the friend of David, but who's Jonadab? Well, go in your Bible to the book of Jeremiah, please. One more place in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 35. Jeremiah chapter 35 in your Bible. I submit that Jonadab is one of the best fathers you're going to read about in your Bible. He is a, he was a tremendous father. And as you turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 35, let me ask you, do you remember King Ahab and Queen Jezebel? Remember who they are? Remember, they were an infamous couple. They were an evil couple who, who was responsible for so many wicked things being promoted in the land of Israel. They were responsible for the spread of idolatry and, and even killing many of God's prophets. And, and a man by the name of Jehu, he helped clean up their mess. A man named Jehu was actually used by God to bring judgment on 
Jezebel and Ahab. In fact, when you read 2 Kings 10, we don't have time to do that this morning, but in 2 Kings 10, we can read about the time when Jehu met this guy named Jonadab. That's actually the first time that we read about Jonadab in the Bible. He lived in the time of, of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And when you get to Jeremiah 35 and verse 12, the Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction by listening to my words, declares the Lord? Look at verse 14. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine or absurd, so they do not drink wine to this day. For they have obeyed their father's command, but I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not listened to me. Also I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, saying, Turn now every man from his evil way, and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to worship them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you unto your forefathers, but you have not inclined your ear or listen to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have observed the command of, the, of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not listened to me. In verse 17, God talks about how they're going to go off into Babylonian captivity. And then in verse 18, it says, Then Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you've obeyed the commandment of, of Jonadab your father, kept all his commands, and done according to all that he's commanded you, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. So in order for us to really appreciate what this text is saying, it's important to understand that what we find here is taking place about 240 years after the life of Jonadab. Jonadab has been dead a long time by this time, but notice how the text tells us his descendants, his great-great-great-great-grandchildren, well, they're still serving God. They're still obeying the teachings of their father. And understand this is going on during a time when, when Israel is not being very faithful to God. I mean, the northern kingdom has gone off into Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom is about to go off into Babylonian captivity. They've gotten involved in idolatry, oppressing the poor, drunkenness. They're involved in all kinds of sins. But Jonadab's family, according to Jeremiah, he was different. He's a contrast to the nation at this time. You see, while the vast majority of Israelites are getting involved in things that displease God, going back to the time of King Ahab, Jonadab, well, Jonadab set a high standard for his family. He set a high standard for his family. He taught his family to love God. He taught them to serve the Lord. He taught them to rise above the evil and corrupt world in which they lived. In fact, in 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom of Israel went into Assyrian captivity, Jonadab's descendants survived that. They actually survived the Assyrian captivity, and they moved south to the land of Judah, and they kept on following the high standard that had been given to them by Jonadab. You see, John Dab is not mentioned a whole lot in the Bible. But what little information the Holy Spirit does give us shows us that he was not just a good father. He's a great father. He was a great father. And my dear friends, for all the men in this room this morning, men who I love and respect so much, we can be fathers like John Dab. 
We can be fathers like Jonadab. Like Jonadab, as we live in a wicked and depraved world, we can set high standards for our families. We can set a high spiritual bar for our family. We can inspire our families, our wives and our children to passionately love the Lord and, and take serving the Lord seriously. You know how we can do that? Well, we can do that by making sure that whenever they open up that fridge in the kitchen, there's no alcohol in there. No beer, no wine in that fridge. No foul language going on in this household. Everybody in this household is going to dress modestly. We're all going to dress modestly. None of the children are ever going to be alone in their bedrooms with Internet access. Whenever we go on vacation, whenever we go out of town for a sports tournament, we're always going to make sure that we find somewhere to go to worship God with his people. That's the kind of man Jonadab was. The people may have called him old fashioned and out of date. But you know what he did? He left a legacy. He taught and lived a righteous life before his kids. And the result of that was he inspired his family and he left a legacy of a godly family. Great father. And so here they are. Here they are. Four good fathers. Had to struggle to find them. Had to do a little studying. But we found them. Here they are. Four good fathers that can help us as men and four fathers that we need the women and the children here to pray that we as men can imitate. In fact, for all the women and the children and the grandchildren who are here this morning, if you have a man like this, men in your family who have these qualities, if you have a husband, a father, a grandfather with these qualities, Make sure you thank the Lord for those men. You know, we kind of beat up men on Father's Day and kind of rise up the, the women. I want to do something a little different this time. I beat up on the guys next year. Wanted to, wanted to be nice to them this Father's Day because they deserve it. Make sure you thank the Lord for the men, the men of God. Praise them. Lift them up because it's not easy being a man, a real man who loves the Lord who loves his family and is trying to serve the Lord with his family. I firmly believe with every fiber of my being that we need real men in the church today. We need men who are going to stand for the truth and stand against unrighteousness and stand with their wives and their children with the Lord. We need godly fathers and may God bless every godly father in this place we appreciate you and love you so much i want to go back to something my dear friend brother mitch johnson my dear friend brother mitch johnson he said earlier that we serve the greatest father 100 percent right 100 percent right about that the greatest father there is is god right god is the greatest father and one of the things that makes god such a great father is his attribute of being willing to forgive his children. And we see that in the prodigal son, do we not? In the parable of the prodigal son, the father in that parable represents God. And when that prodigal comes home, what is the father willing to do? He's willing to forgive. He's willing to hug and kiss his son and welcome him back to his family. That's the God we serve. 
And so is there someone here this morning who needs to come to the Heavenly Father? Is there someone here this morning who may has left God's family? You've been a rebellious child and you need to repent and come back to God. Or if there's someone here who needs to respond to the gospel of the Heavenly Father for the first time through faith and repentance and baptism. If there's anyone here this morning who needs to come to the greatest father there is. Come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing. Is the grandest thing.